The title of my talk this evening is Emptiness and Friendship. I'll see how I do without my glasses. <laughs> so a lot of the whispering was about is whether I can actually see my notes. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I want to talk about emptiness and friendship together because I think that it's really helpful to understand this word emptiness because it's used quite often in the Buddhist teachings. And I'm sure you've heard it even quite often here. But I think that that needs to be clarified and how in some ways it actually isn't any different than friendship and love and openness and all those kinds of words that speak to us more directly. Oftentimes when people think of the word emptiness and try to understand it, it can bring about some unfortunate associations. Often people think of something quite, well, empty, like void or non-existent, or um, even a sense of cold or, or hopeless, like there's nothing there at all. But it's only until one tastes the sweetness of emptiness that they can really understand. Because until then, it's just going to be an intellectual, an intellectual play to try to grasp the sense of this. But it doesn't really work until one goes deeply into it. It doesn't help that much to think about emptiness because that isn't emptiness. It's just the concept. So hopefully here together we can go a little bit more deeply into it. And in doing that, we need to start with looking at this sense of self or ego or I. And the reason we need to do that is because it's the ba- if we believe in a separate self, this is the very thing that obscures the revelation of emptiness. It's this idea that that's who we are, this separate, solid self. So we have to start there and in some ways start to deconstruct that in order to get that sweet taste of emptiness. So in looking at this ego, this self, this I, we see that the ego is that which has ideas for itself. It has lots of ideas of what it wants for itself, how it wants to be. And the, and the ego believes that it can control this, that it can direct the show in some way. 
And so it takes responsibility to achieve these goals. The I takes control. I. I take control. It says, the mind says, if only I could get it right, then the pain would go away, the suffering would go away. If I could face what's happening, then I'd understand, then I'd have some insight. If I could be less spaced out, if I could be more focused, less judgmental, if I could feel more love, if only I could get if only I could let go, what's wrong that I can't? I, 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 I. The I trying to find its way through all of this. But these ideas are usually completely believed in, that this is actually the way. If I could just get control, if I can just understand, then something will happen. We never really question those thoughts themselves, those beliefs themselves. And therefore, this controlling ego keeps getting reinforced. And wondering, we wonder why we remain unhappy, dissatisfied, unfulfilled, repeating the same old habits again and again. because we're not really looking into this belief system that we're carrying. The ego is interested in experiences. It's interested in results, what's happening. When we come on retreat, we have what might be called the meditator's ego. No, we want particular kind of calm state. We want stillness, insight, understanding. We want a quiet mind, not much thought. We want to feel more compassion for ourselves and for other people. We want to feel more relaxation. We want to feel bliss. (laughs) This is called the meditator's ego. All the things that I want for myself that if only I could get it right, then maybe I could have all these things. The wanting, controlling, then we see that what we want doesn't really come. We feel disappointed, unfulfilled, then think, oh, I just have to try harder. More control, more disappointing, disappointment. And then we're in this loop of wanting, controlling, disappointment, unfulfillment. Controlling, wanting, disappointment, unfulfillment. So to get out of this loop, there's some radical change that has to happen. A radical shift is needed. A first step in this radical shift is to stop being concerned about experiences. We can see that as much as we try, we can't really control them anyhow. Things seem to happen out of our control. Things just happen, whether we like it or not. And so it seems logical that it might help to stop being so concerned about 
what kind of experiences happen. Because we see we can't really control them. I think in America, I've spent a lot of time in Asia, and I think living in this country, we get the, we, 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 the habit is reinforced that we can control our experiences. Because like, for example, if we go to the automatic teller machine, the ATM, we put in a card, <laughs> it's likely some money's going to come out. <laughs> There's a sense that I can control my experience. In India, <laughs> if you need to get some money, <laughs> you need to have at least four or five hours open in your day to make that event happen, if in fact it happens. <laughs> if there's not some kind of surprise holiday or somebody died that day, or the man at the bank decided to take a four-hour lunch and you have to catch a train. <laughs> we really live under the illusion that we can make things happen because this country runs so efficiently. I think in some ways India is a very good teacher for that because <laughs> we're shown again and again that in fact we don't have a lot of control about things that we take for granted. So we live in this illusion that gets supported by our culture, by our society, that we can control things. So it's very helpful to see really deeply in our experience that we can't control things. How quickly things change and just go right out of our control and then we get overwhelmed or freaked out sometimes. So we say, look to see how you may be controlling those experiences and see what's really happening. Because when we stop being concerned about what kind of experience we're having, then we can look directly into this I, into this sense of self, into this ego. It seems until we make that shift of looking out to experience and back in towards who is having this experience, who is this experience actually happening to? And who is this controller? Until that question starts to arise, we're not really getting to the crux of the issue. For me, when I began to make this shift, it was as if the rug was being pulled right out from under me. And not metaphorically. <laughs> It was really scary. And I started asking those kinds of questions. So how to begin this investigation into the I, into ego, into self? Where does one go to look? It's really very simple, just as the teachings are often very simple. When we want to look into this idea of I, this thing, 
this sense, this thing that seems so solid. Where we need to look is at the mind, which is where we keep directing you. We just keep directing you. This sense of I, the sense of ego, is made up of identifying with and grasping onto thoughts of I. Believing in these thoughts of I. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what happened to me. I like this. I don't like that. I go over there. I go over here. This whole sense of I and what I think about myself. When we take the thoughts to be the truth of who we are, this creates this ego or the sense of ego. This collection of thoughts, this whole collection of thoughts creates this sense of density, solidity, substance. Sometimes we can see an I thought. I have a sense that most people here have experienced this. Sometimes you can just see this I thought. In a moment, you're not identified with it. Just this thought arising and passing away. These are our moments of freedom. Just a moment of freedom. There's no grasping. There's no identification. You are resting in something other than thought, in consciousness, in awareness, in presence. You see that the thought is insubstantial. But then we have these bodies, and these seem really solid. You know, sometimes you can see, yeah, the thoughts can be very insubstantial, but what about this? This seems really dense. Yet, when we look really closely at this body, what is the experience of having a body? When you really look and feel this body, what is that experience? We experience the body through sensation, through sense impressions. Through the eyes come the images, nose, smells, tongue, tastes, ears, sounds, the skin, touch. We feel sensations in the body. We call those emotions. We give those labels. But they're sensations, sensations moving, shifting through the body. We might give the label anger. There's a tightness, a contraction, a heat that builds up. Tightness in the throat, burning, burning in the shoulders. But it's sensation. We experience that through sensation. And then the thought arises, I'm really angry. Or I'm in a lot of pain. Or when the impression comes onto the eyeball and we see an image, I am seeing a bird. And then the sense of I comes into play. This thought overlays the experience and gives the sense that this is happening to me. We have this bare experience 
And then thought overlays and says, this is happening to me. But when we look closely, we can see these thoughts have no substance. They're like bubbles rising and disappearing. Where is the me in that experience? Where is the me? The only way to maintain this belief in a self is to believe and identify with thought, past, present, and future. We pace these all together, and it gives a sense of continuity, of time, of solidity. But it's really like a film in a movie. When we look to see what the actual film is, it's just this strip of single frames, just individual single frames. And we put it into the projector, and it creates this illusion of a story. And then we get all emotional, we get caught up in it, and it seems real, and then we have to remember when it's all over, oh yeah, we're just sitting here. But it's just these little individual solid strips that give us the illusion of continuity. So when we come here and the mind quiets down, this whole structure of who I think I am begins to slip. The beliefs, images, ideas, concepts about who I am. We can see, and people have said in the groups, just don't believe in it so much. It doesn't quite have the impact that it had before. And things just start to shift a bit. From the ego's point of view, this can seem very scary. And the ego ego can start to rebel in order to return back to a more safe and familiar place. It can throw up even louder thoughts of doubt and fear, or it can just, the mind can just get really dull. Oh no, I don't want to feel this. (laughs) Or this is too hard. I quit. (laughs) This practice isn't for me. (laughs) I can see that it's really worked for other people, but it doesn't really work for me. Um... I need to go take a nap. (laughs) Or, you know, lots of times people say, if I really let myself go into this fear, I'm just going to flip out. I'm going to lose any sense that I ever had, and I'm never going to come back. It's going to be there for the rest of my life. Sometimes we do need to listen to these thoughts. And, and, and perhaps stop and work with our limitations in a skillful way. Take a break. Just back off for a while. And maybe come back when we feel a little stronger. But I think a lot of the time we buy into it just a little too quickly. Maybe not looking carefully enough at what the mind is attempting to do to protect us from this unknown territory.
as we start to see thought as simply thought, as we see this insubstantiality, this solid sense of ourselves start to loosen, just starts to break up. Have you had these moments when you haven't been caught up? You haven't been caught up in worrying about the past, commenting on the present, fantasizing about the future. You're not involved so much in the thinking. Perhaps you've been walking in the forest, sitting late at night. Nighttime is a wonderful time when things just start to quiet down. Listening to the song of a bird, tasting a special food. There's just not much overlay. Just really with that experience, just fully with that experience. Then there's just the seeing, just the hearing, just the smelling, just the tasting, the touch, the feeling. Where is the I, the me in that? Where is the I in this simplicity? The Buddha says, in the seeing, there is only what is seen. In the hearing, there is only what is heard. In the thinking, there is only that which is thought. Even when there is thought, where is the I? Where is the me? the one who's thinking. I want to read something from Dugal Kinsey Rinpoche, this very wonderful lama who died a few years ago. He, many people considered him to be a Buddha. And this is from his book, The Heart Treasure of the Enlightened Ones. He says, when sunlight falls on a crystal, Lights of all colors of the rainbow appear, yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Likewise, all thoughts in their infinite variety, devotion, compassion, harmfulness, desire, are utterly without substance. There is no thought that is something other than emptiness. If you recognize the empty nature of thoughts, at the very moment they arise, they will dissolve. Attachment and hatred will never be able to disturb the mind. No negative actions will be accumulated, so no suffering will follow. When sunlight falls on a crystal, lights of all colors of the rainbow appear yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Isn't this the way it is? Tibetan lamas are wonderful for really giggling at anybody who talks about seeing the mind. They say, no one's ever seen the mind. (laughs) If you go to look for it, it disappears. Who has seen the mind? 
This belief in the concept of I, of self, is the hardest concept to let go of. This belief that I am a solid, separate entity, that I am separate from everything else. The belief that there is a permanent entity in the mind and body which is experiencing all this. An entity which is separate from the process itself. The idea gets created that someone's here. And our whole lives revolve around this idea of a self that needs protection, defense, gratification, all revolving around a concept that isn't true. We get caught because everything seems to happen so quickly. When we look very closely at our experience, what we see are these five senses playing out in thought. Seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, hearing, thinking, feeling, hearing, sensation, feeling. Just playing rapidly in succession. Just like the film that portrays this sense of continuity because it goes so quickly. Another example is if we hold a stick of fire and we whirl it in the air, it gives the illusion of a circle. But there isn't any circle. It's just the rapidity of this whirling of the stick. But when we stop the stick, we can see what's true. There's no circle. So when we come here and we get very still and quiet, we slow down the process. And we can see this rapidity of change. It's very strobe-like, like stars sparkling in the night. And instead of being diluted into a solid concept of I or me or self, what's actually happening are these five senses and thought, moment of seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, feeling, thinking. Moment to moment, moment to moment. So the phenomenon appearing and disappearing out of this great vastness, out of this space of emptiness, I'm sure you've all seen this to some extent in your experience. In many traditions, especially the Tibetan tradition, they talk about emptiness being the same as fullness. They say the expression of emptiness is this vast magical display of appearances and form. That this is the expression of emptiness. And that things happen because of the kindness of emptiness. Everything has room for expression. Emptiness is talked about as having a luminosity, which is expressed through energy and light an all-pervasive and compassionate energy which gives rise to ceaseless manifestations.
with the clear light of our awareness, we can see this insubstantiality of thoughts, sensations, feelings. We can't find an eye which is stable or fixed or static in there. Yet something seems to be happening. We can't say that nothing's happening. Something's happening. We just can't say exactly what's there because it's always changing. We can't pin anything down. We use words to pin down our experience, but words are just concepts, labels to try to understand something that's so insubstantial, so so (laughs) moving, changing, shifting. Kalu Rinpoche, another Tibetan Lama, he says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this reality. When you finally know and understand this reality, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. In knowing that I am everything, then one knows they are interconnected with all things. That nothing is separate. Everything's related. Everything's connected. Nothing's foreign. So therefore, there's really nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. So to look further into emptiness, it seems helpful to look more into this concept of interconnection, interrelatedness. And Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese master, has really helped, I think, all of us understand more deeply this concept of interconnection. And he loves to use the word interbeing that no being exists by themselves. Everything's interconnected. So I want to read something from him, his chapter on interbeing. He says, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow, and without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. If the cloud is not here, the sheet of paper cannot be here either. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. Interbeing is a word that is not in the dictionary yet, but if we combine the prefix inter with the verb to be, we have a new verb. Interbe. Without a cloud, we cannot have paper, so we can say that the cloud and the sheet of paper inter are. If we look into this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. 
the paper and the sunshine inter are. And if we continue to look, we can see the logger who cut the tree and brought it to the mill to be transformed into paper. And we see the wheat. We know that the logger cannot exist without his daily bread, and therefore the wheat that became his bread is also in this sheet of paper. And the logger's father and mother are in it too. When we look in this way, we see that without all of these things, this sheet of paper cannot exist. Looking even more deeply, we can see we are in it too. This is not difficult to see, because when we look at a sheet of paper, the sheet of paper is part of our perception. Your mind is in here, and mine is also. So we can say that everything is in here with this sheet of paper. You cannot point to one thing that is not here. Time, space, the earth, the rain, the minerals in the soil, the sunshine, the clouds, the river, the heat. Everything coexists with this sheet of paper. That is why I think the word interbe should be in the dictionary. <laughs> to be is to interbe. You cannot just be by yourself, alone. You have to interbe with every other thing. This sheet of paper is because everything else is. As thin as this paper is, it contains everything in the universe in it. So no individual is separate, has some separate existence. When we talk of emptiness, empty of what? We're talking about being empty of a separate self-existence. When we look at this retreat, we have a retreat here. What's this retreat made of? The retreat doesn't exist as a separate entity. The retreat is made up of people, people practicing meditation, people cooking in the kitchen, the staff in the office, buildings, the Buddha, the bell, the sun, the trees, the crickets, the birds, the rain. The retreat does not exist alone. So many things make it up, fill the emptiness. This body, we think this body exists by itself, but what keeps this body going? We have lungs and heart and kidneys and stomach, blood. Everything's coexisting together. You take one thing out and it's not going to run as well. <laughs> Everything kind of needs to be intact to get the fullness of it. So things are empty of individuality, but they're full of everything else. It's not voidness. It's not non-existence, but rather what be, might be more helpful 
So when we think of emptiness, to think of fullness. Think of wholeness. Think of connection. If we say form is empty, we mean form is empty of a separate self-existence. But it is full of everything in the cosmos. Nothing can be by itself, which means we are never alone. And this is what brings me to friendship. I am intimately connected with everything. Nothing is separate from me. The air, the water, the earth, the fire, these are the elements that make up my body. The flowers, the animals, the beings, they all create the conditions for my reality. Thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, they are all intimately parts of my world. Nothing is alien. Nothing to push away. Perceiving in this way allows me to feel a very deep friendship toward all things. There's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing that has to be pushed out of my experience. This is really what we mean by metta. Metta means deep friendship. Deep friendship and connection with all things. Perceiving in this way has helped me to see that I can honor everything that comes to me. That everything that comes to me comes to me for a reason. It comes to me as an offering, as a divine intervention. I can see each thing as sacred. And so in that way, I want to bow down. I want to, I want to bow down to each thing that comes, since I see everything as my teacher, everything as my guru. Every thought, every image, every sense impression, every feeling, every emotion, every person I meet, every situation I'm in, all of this is an offering. It's prasad. In India, the word prasad means the offering to the guru. But who's the guru? So not to be afraid of what's right in front of us. In this way, it's possible to make friends with every aspect of our experience. That everything is our friend. Everything is our teacher. Rilke, one of his famous passages that many of you have heard from Letters to a Young Poet, Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses 
who are only waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Is it possible to look at what arises in our experience from that perspective? Something that wants our love. Something that wants our attention. Something that wants to be embraced by the light of our awareness. Why push anything away? Tony Packer, another very great meditation teacher, she says, change comes on its own when the self realizes its total impotence. Then it may quiet down in this realization. It is the self that wants to save itself. When the self is quiet in silent understanding, something wholly new is taking place. When the self is quiet, This is a radically different way to live, seeing one's interconnected, interconnectedness with all things. And it points to the essence of the Buddhist teachings, the teachings of nonviolence, of non-harming. And this is why emptiness can never be taught without compassion, because somebody may see what they interpret as emptiness, as voidness. But they don't see the interconnectedness. And just seeing emptiness as voidness can lead to recklessness. And I don't care, nothing matters, it doesn't matter what I do, everything's empty. But when we see the interconnection, this is what brings (coughs) the compassion and the sensitivity. If I throw a pebble into a pond, I see how the ripples flow out to touch the shore. In the same way, everything is interrelated. And by seeing this clearly, it does awaken our compassion to care for and protect all living beings. By knowing this deeply, we come to realize that we are responsible for everything that we do, everything we say, everything we think. Because the ripples just go out and touch everything. As the Buddha said, Do not overlook actions merely because they are small. However small a spark may be, it can burn down a haystack as big as a mountain. And from here springs meaning and purpose in our lives. When we look around, we can see how desperately 
how desperately we need to restore a sense of living interconnection in our world and interconnection within ourselves. And this is really our work, to awaken to the truth of who we are, to awaken to see that we are not solid, separate, isolated selves. Because when we really know this truth of who we are, compassion flows effortlessly. There's no doubt about our purpose. There's no doubt about our responsibility. And our energy is free and clear to help to relieve the pain that we see around us, to relieve the suffering that we see everywhere. And we can shine our light wherever we go. May all beings know the emptiness of things. May all beings know they are truly connected. May all beings live with compassionate wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.